Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. At The Intercooler, we're proud to have JBR Capital on board as a podcast sponsor. They're a great fit for us because like The Intercooler, they're geared up around the car enthusiast. JBR Capital is the UK's only independent finance lender dedicated solely to high-end vehicle finance. That's all the company does. It means JBR Capital knows the car marketplace inside out and therefore is properly geared up to tailor finance quotes around the individual. There's no one-size-fits-all approach with JBR. In 2022, the company expects to surpass a billion pounds of lending in only its eighth year. The company can finance new cars, classic cars, sports cars, supercars, hypercars, any car, in fact, with a value greater than £25,000. The company's motto is fund your passion. And let's face it, without car finance, how many of us would really be able to afford to fund our passion for cars? So get in touch with JBR Capital before buying your next car. You'll find contact information in the description. And as ever, tell them the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 107 of the podcast, everybody. I'm Dan Prosser with Andrew Frankel. Andrew, busy one this week. A very busy lots podcast. Yeah, lo- lots going on. We've we've both had fun weekends, haven't we? So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the art of oversteer. Um, but before we get on to that, do you know what? The first thing I want to talk about this week is what I have in my hands here. This is actually oh, okay. quite important. So this is... I collected this yesterday. This is, and I've not seen you it yet. You haven't seen this, have you? No, I'm opening it for the first time now. And I'm going to be very, very careful with it. I'm sorry if you're listening rather than watching this on YouTube because this isn't going to make for the most riveting part of the podcast. It's a boring segment of the podcast <laughs> if you're not watching. Uh, but it won't last but long. That, we'll be quick. That is a very, very beautiful bit of work. Okay, if you're watching on YouTube... Oh, we'll put this on Instagram as well so people can see. Wow. That is a lovely... That is the original, and it's a beautiful piece of work. Um, It's a drawing, a hand drawing, of an Alpine A110, a new one, in blue. And if you look at the number plate, you see there's a little TI logo there. Um, And coming out of the wheel... I don't know if you can even see that where you you are, Andrew. There's... And it's a, essentially an extract, some text from the review that you wrote about the A110 when it was new. What's the significance of this? Our friend, Adam Gomputz, Revs, they call him. Um, he was a car designer, now a reverend. Um, and he's a great guy, a friend of TI. And he's clearly an incredible artist. Um, he really is. Yeah, his stuff is beautiful isn't it 
Yeah, go and um, look him up on social media. Um, he's, he usually comes under revs, doesn't he? Or um, what else does he call himself? Um, but Adam Gompertz, you'll find him and just look at his drawings. I mean, he has such a, well, I'm mean, an amazing talent, but he, he has the sort of feel for his subject that you just wouldn't get unless you were truly passionate about cars as well. So he has the talent, but he also has the knowledge and he has the passion as well. And it's, uh, and well, you'll see the results. It's magical stuff. Yeah, and one of the things he's doing nowadays is he has a new initiative called Auto Artists for Ukraine. So if you search social media, Auto Artists for Ukraine, you'll find it. Why are we talking about this now? We, we wanted to do something, didn't we, to support Ukrainian refugees. Um, and teaming up with Adam Gompertz and Auto Artists for Ukraine is the way that we've decided to do that. Now, these guys, it's, it was started by Adam, but there's now a whole bunch of brilliant car-themed artists contributing. And what they're doing is they're creating new artworks that are then auctioned off, they're sold, um, to raise money for the Red Cross for Ukrainian refugees. Um, and we wanted to get involved. And we spoke to Adam. Um, actually, he came to us. Um, and we spoke to him and he said, let's do something. Let's, I'll, I'll create a drawing for you. You talk about it. You write about it. You auction it off via your platform. And we'll raise some money for the Red Cross and for Ukrainian refugees. Um, and I will point out, by the way, that it was Andrew's idea, not mine, to get Adam to draw an Alpine A110. Um, <laughs> the, point, the point being, though, you chose it, Andrew, because it's, it is, it still is, the only car that we at the Intercooler have handed a 10 out of 10 rating to. Um, yeah. Certainly the only new car. Yeah. Um, and so it's a significant car for us, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so it, is. it, it has it, it has meaning to us, that car. And so it was perhaps an easy choice for for adam to draw one of those can i can i also just jump in a little bit on the on the red cross only because it's, it's something i know a little bit about because i uh, some of you may know um i i ran the brighton marathon a couple of weeks ago um and i wanted to i did it because i wanted to raise some money for um ukraine and i, and I just happened to do quite a lot of research because i wanted to make sure i was doing it for the right charity um and everyone i spoke to said not just the the British Red Cross, but the British Red Cross um, Ukraine appeal is absolutely the most effective way to get money where it's needed um, to the sadly now millions of refugees um, that are either camped on the border or come out of that country. Um, and so, you know, hopefully this is you know the right sort of thing, and it's certainly for the right cause, and it's certainly for the right people who are addressing that cause. So, um, yeah, please support it if you possibly can. Um, so the plan is to sell this drawing, and it's a hand drawing. It is the original. It's very beautiful. We'll post some pictures of it so people can see. Um, and it was suggested by Adam that you and I sign it, but I, I don't want to devalue it. So instead, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get David Tuig to sign it um and he remember is the bloke who engineered the a110 and you know i think that's a cool thing now but imagine in 20 or 30 years when you can point to this drawing on the wall and you say that's the original and it was signed by the bloke who engineered the car that's going to feel really yeah. sig significant and special um and uh, so uh, and also, in, in, sorry also in the highly unlikely event that, that, that whoever gets it does want us to sign it um, yeah, we, we will, we will. Of course, <laughs> sign it just let us know we will do it <laughs> Um, and so we're hoping that there'll be someone out there, maybe you're an Alpine owner, um, maybe you've been looking for a way to support Ukrainian refugees for a while. Come and make us a disgusting offer. We, you know, we, we're, we're not, we don't want to raise 20 or 30 quid, do we? We want to make a little bit of money for no, we want to make the a Red Cross. Money, yeah. um, so, and we're going to do it by silent auction. Uh, we'll let it run for a week, let's say. Um, and just message us any way you like. You can find our email on the website, you can DM us, you can tweet us, whatever you want to do. Get your bid across, um, and whoever's prepared to pay the most amount of money for it will we'll get it, we'll post it out to you, um, we'll make sure it arrives in immaculate condition. Um, and please be generous. And do you know what? If an Alpine A110 drawing isn't for you, and it's totally understandable, do still check out Auto Artists for Ukraine. Between them, this whole group of really skilled really talented artists are producing some beautiful work so if you don't want a french sports car on your wall perhaps there's something else that you'll like and the important point is it's going to 
the best calls imaginable, isn't it? So, yeah, we'll put that on Instagram and on Twitter um, very shortly so people can see. But please do be generous. Please do get in touch with us and let us know what you'll be prepared to donate in return for a very very beautiful piece of work. And to Adam, thank you so much for your time and for the idea. Um, we we really appreciate it. Um, God, we've got so much to talk about. We we are we're going to talk about the weekends that you and I have both had because we've had some fun cocking about in older cars. We we're going to talk about drifting and the art of oversteer um this we are recording this the day after the emilia romana grand prix at imola uh, i didn't watch the race i had it i was listening to it as i drove home um i think you really want to talk about lewis hamilton don't you i do a bit i mean the race um you know the race was the race and uh i mean it was really sad that leclerc dropped the car dropped the car um but I mean, Red Bull just had one of those weekends, didn't they? They just aced everything. They did. They just, you know, sprint race, fastest lap, one, two in the race itself. That was great. Yeah, I mean, so I, I put out a tweet saying, you know, and I actually think I did this during the race, right at the end, but it doesn't really matter, you know, because Lewis was in P14 and George Russell was P4. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm not even suggesting anything. I'm just wondering um, why that is, because actually through the course of the season now, I think George has largely had the better of Lewis. Um, my view is that you cannot read anything into it. The season is not nearly old enough yet. Um, there are more than enough things that can happen, particularly um, in this most recent race. Uh, you had a poor start. You got stuck in the DRS train. There are all sorts of reasons um, why Lewis ended up where he did and George ended up where he did. But it's just interesting, isn't it, that you know if this continues throughout the course of the year is that is that going to damage the reputation of you know, statistically at least by far and away the most successful formula one racing driver that there has ever been is he going to become thought of as a sort of you know um sir vettel type character who was incredibly quick when given a championship winning car um but ultimately struggled uh, in the midfield I can't see it for Lewis. I mean, he is such an incredible, capable racing driver. I still believe he's the class of the field. Um, but the scores are the scores, aren't they? And, you know, as I say, it's far too early to read much into it. But I just really hope that his reputation isn't in any way, if he does end up having a really, you know, poor season by his standards, and let's face it, by his standards, he's probably having the poorest seasons he's, ha- he's had since he's come into Formula One. Um I don't know what that's going to do to his head. I suspect a few years ago that would really have troubled him. Now I think he's so experienced, so grown up now. And also, if you listen to his sort of radio chat, you know, I don't know whether you heard that exchange between him and Toto, where Toto was just apologising for saying, "Sorry, we, sorry, we gave you such a terrible car," and Lewis is coming back saying, "Just don't worry, you know, we've got a lot of hard work to do. Let's just focus on the job and keep going." Um, but yeah, I hope it doesn't continue. I hope he you know, gets back to winning ways and this just proves pre- pre- to be a statistical blip rather than anything more meaningful than that. That's really all I wanted to say, I think. Mm. I remember writing something towards the end of last year saying I think it would actually be one of Lewis's biggest achievements to get the better of George Russell over these two years because it is the nature of sport that younger people come through and displace yes. the older guys. That is the nature yeah. of sport. And to resist yes. the nature of sport would be an extraordinary thing. You know, we've seen Schumacher and Alonso and many of the greats be defeated by younger drivers, be that in the same team or in a, well, I suppose more often in a, in a different team. Um, but I think it's the way these things go. And it might well be that, I mean, they're coming at this same car, this same season from two totally different places. Lewis used to fighting for wins every weekend and fighting Used for to driving a winning car. Yeah, and often winning. Yeah. More, more often than not winning. Um, yeah. George is coming from actually a back-of-the-grid car. Um, yeah. And so it, it might just be a motivation thing. Lewis might be thinking, why am I wasting my time doing mm. this? Um, it might be that he's just not familiar with yeah. the dog of a car that you have to wrestle. You're right. You're right. It's George's um, natural state, isn't it, to be scrapping for every place yeah. in a... You know, by Formula One standards, a pretty rubbish car. Whereas this mm. is just like new. This is like you know, new ground for Lewis, or, or or so 
he's so far removed um, from that. And also, you're so right about the young driver. I mean, think back to, I think right now, what Lando is doing to Danny Rick. Mm. And then think back um, to what Danny Rick did to Vettel. You know, it's, you can't hold back the tide, can you? No. It's how it goes. And it's in every sport. It happens in boxing and in tennis and all sorts. Um, I think it's just the nature of sport. Um, and, I, you know, let's not forget, four or five months ago, Lewis was the cream of the field. He was, at the end of last season, he was, he was maybe as good as he's ever been. Um, and I think if you if Mercedes managed to give him a car that's capable of fighting for wins, he'll be right back there. Um, of course. And I, I really hope they get on top of this car, or at least next year's Mercedes is a race winner, because watching him and George go at it will be one of the real highlights of this season or next. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a theory that George is the strongest teammate Lewis has had since Alonso. And that's oh, very I don't possible. Think it's a theory. I think it's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, Alonso was Lewis's teammate in Lewis's first ever season in Formula One back in 2007. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it could be, in a, it could, as you say, it could be an incredible scrap. Um, do you think the championship's already gone? For Lewis, yeah. Yeah. He's said it as much as well, hasn't he? But it, it all depends on the Mercedes, doesn't it? And. I, I'm beginning to such think. a turnaround is going to be required, particularly because, you know, the other thing is that the Ferraris and the Red Bulls, they're going to be pushing each other, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. You know, if you've got, if, if, if you're you know, way out in front and, you know, it doesn't really matter, you know, you're not going to spend money making a, a quick car even quicker or really, you know, because you don't, you don't need to do that. But I mean, I think the Red Bull and Ferrari battle is going to really, really hot up. Um, they will both be so, so keen to win. Ferrari, because they haven't won for, like, forever. Red Bull, because they've just rediscovered winning ways. Um, and they're going to be pushing each other so hard. And Mercedes is, it seems so far behind, doesn't it? And the worry to me is that, is that this is right at the start of a new regulatory um, set of rules, if that's even a phrase. Anyway, um, <laughs> and, 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 it's, and, and it's, you know... It's difficult, isn't it? Because the templates have already been set and there's only a limited amount you can do. Um, I really hope they turn it around because I'd just fundamentally much rather have you know three teams up there battling for it than two. Mm-hmm. And two of the best drivers on the grid involved in the scrap. That's what you want to Absolutely see, isn't right. it? Absolutely yeah. right. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if that car, if the Mercedes is fundamentally flawed and no amount of tweaking and refining is going to fix it, then at some point they're going to have to abandon this season and use it as an extended test for next year's car, aren't they? Yeah, um, they are. But I, I hope, I hope actually they manage to get on top of it. Okay, right, let's move it on. Uh, we've both had fun weekends driving oldish cars. Um, yeah, I've been with BMW because next month it's fifty years of BMW M, and they're having all sorts of celebrations around that. And this was part of it. We um, we went to Bister Bister Heritage for the Sunday Scramble yesterday. Um, and leading up to it, they sent me one car and I swapped over the weekend. Now I'm in another car from the Heritage Fleet. I'll talk about those in a moment. Um, but let's hear your weekend. You've been cocking about in old cars with friends. Yeah, I mean, this is so there's a, there's a bunch of um, mates who are all um, either current or former motoring journalists. Uh, and for a few years now, actually, um, we sort of rotate it around our houses and one one of us hosts one year and then it sort of goes on to the next one. Um we just do what car enthusiasts do. We get together in our old cars and go for a bit of a drive. Um, you know, we'll meet in a pub um, for lunch on day one. So we spend the morning getting to wherever that is. Um, we'll have a bite to eat. Um, spend all afternoon driving. Um, and then, <laughs> funny enough, go to another pub in the evening. Um, have a bite to eat. Probably a bit to drink. Um, and then um, the following morning, when everyone's feeling um, happy and well again, we'll go off and do a bit more driving and then end up in a pub for, I mean, you know, and it's, it, it's so simple and whoever's hosting sort of works out the routes um, and because it's always local to where they are they always know where the good roads are and we're lucky that we all live in you know quite nice parts of the world from the point of view of driving and so um, I took my caterum down because I hadn't taken that to one of these things before because I've only had it for a year uh, and we haven't it's fair to say, we haven't done this for a couple of years because of lockdown obviously um, and so one mate turned up in uh, an M635 CSI, uh, which was wonderful. 
another in a P6 Rover, a 2000 TC, but he's just rebuilt the engine and he's made it a 2.2, um, which was, you know, which is what they did in period anyway. Um, and <laughs> the last turned up in a, a 1972 Corvette Stingray that he'd just imported from Florida. Um, and I mean, it was such a ridiculously eclectic bunch of cars, you know, to see the Caterham and the Corvette there together. Um, but it, they, they, they were all just, you try to think of things which, you know, unite them. And frankly, they're all just interesting cars. Um, I mean, the Caterham, the Caterham, I'm not going to bang on about it because I'll probably do too much of that on this podcast anyway. But it was, you know, I, I was a bit, I wasn't nervy about driving it all that way because I live in Wales and this event was happening in Sussex. Um, but um, it was fine. And we went over there and, you know, did a, a, quite a big mileage and it functioned brilliantly there and back so that was good um the n635 csi uh, my dad had one of them um years and years and years ago when i was a kid um and well young adult anyway uh and it was you just don't forget that's the weird thing you just don't forget you sit in the car and your hands just sort of automatically go to where you, they already know the controls are it's some kind of weird muscle memory and that engine that 286 horsepower uh three and a half liter motorsport twin cam straight six it's to me it's one of the classic classic powertrains and it was just and that interior and the look of the car and to me that's that's the kind of definitive sporting gt that car um i mean i can remember that you know when we when my dad had his he also had a ferrari mondial at the same time goodness knows why he had both i don't know um but he never drove the ferrari when that was around it was just you know the bmw was just a better car so that was that. Um, the Rover was probably the most surprising because I think Rover P6, you know, it's nine, it was a 19, was it 1972 car, I think. You think, well, it's just a sort of thing that British Ireland built back then. But actually, this is a really nice one. It felt almost like, and this will sound ridiculous to anybody who hasn't driven a really nice one, it felt like a sort of, almost like a junior silver shadow. It had that sort of innate sense of quality to it. And it didn't rattle and it didn't squeak and it didn't fall over. It felt completely together. It felt quicker than I thought it was going to be. And it just felt like, okay, it's not a car that, you know, you're going to go and drive, you know, like an A110 or a Caterham or anything else for the love of driving. But it was, it's like anything that you experience, whether it's, you know, whether it's a car or even a, I don't know, a hi-fi system that is of innate quality. It is innately pleasurable because of that. Um, And... Actually, of the four, that was the most surprising. I really enjoyed driving it. It felt taut, it felt responsive, um, and it was just a nice thing to waft about in. And then we got on the Corvette. <laughs> oh, the Corvette. So this is so they made over half a million C3 Corvettes, of which fewer than 5,000, so less than 1%, were what they called LT1. So it had an LT1 engine in it, um, which you know was used for racing so it's got solid lifters and cross bolted this that and the other uh it also had a four-speed manual gearbox limited slip diff so this was the car that they built chevy built for people who actually wanted to drive rather than just sort of pose about the place and it's such a it's such a ridiculously dramatic shape you see you see it's you know it is an occasion on wheels you know there's not a person who hears it coming who turns around and looks at it who doesn't look twice it's double take central and you know that car's just come in from florida um it was running a bit rich um the suspension rear suspension wasn't quite what it should have been so it's just one of those things which is you know it's, it's a work in progress but to just to sort of smoke around in that for a bit and to to look at it to feel it to hear it um to point it to to just to learn the very particular way that a car like that needs to be driven um which is about as different from a caterham as you could possibly imagine uh it was just it was just a really fun process of jumping in and out those cars which we did every you know half an hour or so we just stop at the side of the road and swap cars and everybody drove everything uh and it was just yeah we had wonderful roads we had very kind the weather was very kind to us you know we with old friends um a couple of whom i hadn't seen for a couple of years and it was to me that it was just like the perfect motoring weekend um yeah and you know every time i do it i just think to myself well we do this once a year we should we should do it three or four times yeah. a year because yeah. it was just just great anyway um yeah. so that was me and um you've been spoken about in v8 bmws i have yeah so last week um bmw 
UK delivered its the Heritage Fleet Z8 to me, not an M car, but it has an M engine, um, that wonderful five litre V8. Um, uh, and then we went to we spent the evening together on Saturday evening, and we went to Bista, uh, Bista Heritage on Sunday, and I came back in another car, um, E39 M5, same V8. Uh, I hadn't driven either of those cars before, so a real privilege and a pleasure to get to try them both. Um, and yeah, the Z8, I mean, I was so curious to drive it because I, I remember very clearly what a kicking it got from you guys um, yeah. in the press 20 odd years ago. Uh, so I was really curious to drive it because I always thought they look really beautiful um, with that strange interior and I knew it had a great engine. Um, so I, it turned up and I, I really like the way it looks. I, I don't like some of the sort of very overt 50s Americana references as they are to me, the the chrome and the that odd steering, the wired steering wheel, which looks yeah, a bit strange, and the, and, the, <laughs> and the centrally mounted dials that lean over to peer at you. Um, yeah, it's, I, it's quite charming, I suppose. The thing about this car is that it does... Okay, let me just finish on the styling. I, I always thought they looked really cool and I still do but when someone pointed out to me that the windscreen is actually a bit upright and a bit tall you you then can't unsee it it makes it look just a little yeah. bit ungainly um but still a, a mega looking thing um with a, a cool quirky unusual interior um and of course what I remember about this car is that it's a design shamelessly to be a boulevard cruiser that's what it is maybe a grand tourer um, it's certainly not supposed to be a sports car, um, yeah. and you—that plays out the moment you start driving it. This thing—I don't know what they were like in period. I don't know how representative this one is. I assume fairly, but it doesn't really steer. You know, there's a good amount of play before it does anything. And when you're clipping along, and you turn into a corner, there's a, a noticeable delay before the front axle actually does anything. Um, and then the car wafts and rolls a lot, and it feels fairly heavy um actually when you really start kicking it along the road it's not bad it's not terrible at all but it's not what it wants to be doing um and i think the point the the sort of lasting point is that if you love driving the way we do you're not going to get your sports car kicks out of this the way you might a no. contemporary 911 no. or a small ferrari or something um but the engine's wonderful. i think that's what we i think that's what we couldn't forgive it for in period um, I, and I still don't know whether actually that said more about us than it did about the car. I think we fundamentally, and maybe BMW should have been better at explaining it, but I think we fundamentally misunderstood what this car was. And you know, the lack of the M badge is a bit of a clue, isn't it? Um, but we thought that this was going to be, you know, a two seat open, you know, front engine V8 manual rear drive sports car. I mean, that's what it looks like, isn't it? You know, it with is, that yeah. engine. And that engine kind of writes a check and you kind of think, oh, okay, so it's going to be like that. And it just wasn't. Um, but just because a car is set up to be a touring car doesn't make it a bad car, does it? It just makes it a different kind of car, maybe to the one that you expected it to be, maybe from the one you wanted it to be. But um, I haven't driven that car in a few years. But when I did, and I did revisit it not that long ago, I just thought, okay, you know, forget all the baggage, forget everything that we wrote about and thought about and said at the, at the time and just assess it for, for what it is and what it's trying to do. And I thought it was charming. Proper money charming. now as well, aren't they? 150 is about the cheapest. Yeah. This one's probably closer to quarter of a million pounds. Yeah. Which, so, you know, so, 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 the, so the market rates, I know they're rare, hmm. but I mean, if it was a complete duffer, um, you know, the market still wouldn't care, would that? But it does. So, you hmm. know. Um, yeah, they. I was talking to BMW, and they dropped to, I think, sub forty thousand pounds when they were newish, a couple of few years after launch. Yeah. Oh, imagine if you picked one up cheap and just slung it in a shed for a couple of decades. It's done you well, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I will write about the Z8 a bit more uh, on the Intercooler app. And I came home in the C thirty nine M five. So I've only driven it home um, from Bicester to Bristol. Uh, so I haven't learned a huge amount about it. I've never driven one before, but it's it feels lovely. I'm going to spend some more time in it this week and learn a bit more about it. Um, but do you know what? What I actually wanted to talk about is car manufacturer heritage fleets. Um, 
because they're under pressure and we've seen some downsized um, and we've seen some sold off altogether. And I understand why, because actually it works against them that their values increase, which does happen with these cars, particularly BMWs. Um, you know, the, the cars that we had over the weekend, I think there were six or seven, probably between them worth close to three quarters of a million pounds. And back at base, BMW has got other cars in its heritage fleet that are worth much more. So as, a, as an asset, the heritage fleet is worth a huge amount of money. And that becomes a problem because the, it becomes worth too much money for it to make sense to hold on to them. Um, and so there is, I, one assumes there's pressure from within the business. And I'm not, not just talking about BMW, I'm talking about anyone that has a heritage fleet. There is pressure to sell off certain cars or to sell off the whole thing. Um, because money is often needed elsewhere. And let's not forget, they cost a lot of money to maintain and to keep running. Um, so I think it's worth talking about why these fleets are important. Um, and talking about BMW particularly, um, without it, without BMW's heritage fleet, I would not have a view on the 1M, the M3 CSL, now the Z8, the E39 M5 and others. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know what they were like to drive at all. I hope to be writing and talking about cars for 30 or 40 years from now. Um, and all of those cars I will discuss favourably because they're wonderful and I've enjoyed driving every one of them. Without the Heritage Fleet, I wouldn't be able to do that. Now multiply that across the hundreds, maybe thousands of journalists who will drive these cars during their time on BMW's Heritage Fleet and you realise what good work these cars can do. And let's not forget that readers, listeners, viewers, they love learning about these cars, perhaps more than their newer stuff. So I understand why there might be an immediate pressure on heritage fleets, but I just think it's so important that they don't go anywhere. Yes, you can borrow I mean, cars from, from readers or, or viewers or from dealers, but you can't take them away for five days. You can't take them to scotland or north wales and produce beautiful lasting imagery of those cars you can't drive them on track you can't drive them to their full potential you can with heritage fleet cars um and so i just i just hope that they are protected they're, they're also going to become so much more important in the future even than they are now because they are going to you know i think that people are going to that car manufacturers are going to be are going to struggle, frankly, to get people to feel really fired up and emotionally connected to their brands when all they're making are EVs. I think it's going to be a real struggle. Um, and I think these heritage fleets, and I don't think anyone, I don't, people will say, oh, yeah, but if you have a heritage fleet, all that's going to do is remind people of, you know, how good things used to be. I don't think people will see it like that. I think they will just understand that this is where the cars they drive today, where they came from. Uh, and I think they're going to become incredibly precious things. I mean, I'll tell you this. Every single car manufacturer that sold off even part of its heritage fleet, unless it's rubbish. I mean, you know, I know that I know but there's one particular car manufacturer at the moment which has just accumulated a load of stuff over the years and some of it doesn't work and some of it's rotting and they and they are get they're just getting rid of all the rubbish and then pooling that resource and basically on a quality over quantity point of view, and that's great. Um, but they you know, those who just get you know, who just you know sell the family silver, which is effectively what you're doing. They always, always regret it. They do. Uh, you know, there comes a time. Um, and, you know, I think if you measure it in terms of column inches or in terms of brand building, you know, these things, these things work and they're only going to work even more. Um, you know, BMW, they probably won't thank me for um, bringing this up again. But, you know, they, they did the ultimate sell-off. They had Athena racing McLaren F1. Oh, and wow. now this was a okay this was a long time ago so no one who's there now had anything to do with this i'd just like to make that clear but somebody and i know it was came into the business and took one look at that and said what's that doing here and i don't think i can tell it's told me a confidence i i so i can't tell you what they sold it for but if you if i told you what they'd sold that car for you would put your head in your hands it was a Ooh. racing mclaren f1 with you know a proper competition history behind it i mean that car today is it's 20 what, it's 20 million quid all day long isn't it um and that's not what they sold it for so 
Yeah, I, I really hope that they do. Um, and I think that it is enlightened to maintain this stuff, um, particularly if it's... You know, I'm not sure that people should just keep an example of absolutely everything that they've ever made because so many cars we just end up not caring about. When it's the really, really... And you know, look at the people, you know, if you look at this on all sorts of more international, you look at the manufacturers who really do this properly. You know, manufacturers like Porsche who work their heritage fleets you know, relentlessly all over the world, all the time, Mercedes-Benz. And then you look at a manufacturer which hasn't got one, got one like Ferrari, which never kept anything. So if you go to the Ferrari Museum, um, all the cars there are, you know, are borrowed from owners. I bought, they may have started recently collecting, uh, keeping stuff, but you know, certainly historically that always used to be the case. Um, and, you know, you can't really do anything with an owner's car other than just sort of put it on a stand and let people see it. Whereas... You know, Porsche and Mercedes-Benz are the two that particularly spend to mind. Uh, and Bentley as well. Bentley recently have done incredible stuff with their heritage fleet. And they are, you know, they love their heritage and they think that it's really relevant and important to what they're doing today. Um, and, you know, I've been lucky enough to drive, you know, this. I mean, they have everything from 19 cars in the 1920s to, you know, the car that won the more in 2003 and everything in between. And, and again, they really work that fleet. Um, and, you know, they're not idiots. They're not just doing it for the hell of it. They do it because they know that it works. So, yeah. Mm. Keep going. Yeah. Protect them, please. Um, yeah. Okay. I just have to ask what? you, I know you haven't had much time in the E39, but if you had to keep one of those and you can't sell it, so forget money, <laughs> M5 <laughs> Z8. Um, I think the M5 is just more me. Yeah, okay. I think I'd be happier yeah. using it every I'd day agree. as well. And I'd absolutely agree, yeah. yeah. I think it, it feels wonderful, the, the, you know, the first um, hour or so I've spent in it, a couple of hours, um, yeah, very positive. I just can't wait to have a proper go. Uh, okay, the last uh, topic for this week, apart from the listener question, which we will, we will do later on. Um, David Tuig, um, and we've published it today, has written a really wonderful piece about while he was working for Nissan in Tokyo in 2004 um, he was invited to go and watch some actually illegal street drifting in the hills outside Tokyo um, which is a huge part of Japanese car culture Um, and so to get to go and experience that firsthand um, such a privilege such a fortunate thing to be able to do and particularly because I, I assume it doesn't happen now um, it's become a sort of properly regulated sport on purpose-built facilities, isn't it? It's not. It's not what it was. It's not the underground thing that it once was. And underground illicit motorsport—it's such a big part of car culture. You think drag racing in the US? Um, it's the. It's really the same thing. Anyway, he's written a wonderful piece, and it just demonstrates that the bloke isn't just a good technical writer with an excellent understanding of how a car works. He can understands words as well it's really frustrating um but i wanted to talk a bit about the art of oversteer um and of course drifting has become a properly regulated sport now um and it's yeah you you see the skill of the drivers um and it is a spectacle watching two or more of these cars within inches of one another door handle to door handle sliding through a series of bends it's a it's it's an amazing thing to see but I, for me, making it a sport somehow feels a little bit contrived. The cars are built specifically to do it with the camber, the amount of steering lock they have, the power they have and so on. They're they're built specifically for it. And I think I've been wondering why that sits slightly unhappily with me. And I think it's because, to me, oversteer should almost be a consequence of a car being driven just a little bit harder than it ideally wants to go. Um, So to do it, intentionally feels a bit forced having said that i'd love to have a go and i think it does look amazing the guys the guys and girls who do it are clearly super skilled um so andrew when you hear the word drifting in your mind's eye are you seeing a nissan 200sx in a garish color scheme or are you seeing jim clark cigar tube grand prix car four-wheel drifting through a quick corner you're nodding (laughs) the latter uh, I'm actually, I'm actually, I'm probably actually seeing, uh, well, probably Jim Clark again, but in something like a um, an Aston Martin DB4 GT Zagato or something like that. Um, yeah, um, no, I'm thinking because, and I'll tell you why. You're talking about um, cars that, you know, modern cars that are designed 
to drift. So they've thought, okay, we want this car to drift, therefore we'll design the car this way. Back in the day, it was the other way around. Um, cars drifted, not because people were designing them to drift, but because the way the tyres worked, that was how you got them to go fast. They weren't drifting for the sake of drifting. They weren't going sideways because the drivers liked going sideways, although I'm sure they did. They were going sideways because their tyres would only function at a slip, ang- at a slip angle. Um, and if, as I'm lucky enough to do, you do historic racing, um, you understand this. You know, you get on a set of skinny L-section Dunlops. Um, and if you're not going sideways, you're driving the car the wrong way. Um, it's as simple as that. It's all about... And, and, and we're not talking about, you know, extravagant 45-degree skids here. It's just... You know, it, it is just maintaining the car in a condition that is perpetually slightly over the limit um and yeah and, it, and it's it's actually it's remarkably easy to do in those old cars it, it, they tend to be you know was it front engine rear drive not all of them but you know most of them are um the tires have very little grip in the dry uh in the wet they're just comical um and it, a, it's great fun because, well, going sideways is great fun, isn't it? Um, but B, it's also, it's, quite, it's a surprisingly cerebral experience. Um, if you're in a car, I mean, the, the, the sort of cars that I drive that do it best are old Alphas because they're so well balanced um, and they just, they just drift beautifully. And there's a sort of, you can kind of, you've got enough time to just kind of try to maintain it at the perfect angle where you're extracting the most out of the car without going so fast that you actually start losing time. And I love that component of it. What I don't love, and I'd be interested in your view of this, and I don't love it because I suspect, but by the standards of the people who are very good at it, I'm not, um, is drifting around in modern road cars. It is an absolute component of what you and I do for a living. Um, you will never go on a shoot in an interesting car with a photographer, particularly if there's a racetrack anywhere nearby where you're not asked to do, you know, the big skid. Um, I've never particularly enjoyed doing it. I've never felt that I'm particularly good at it. Um, I'm okay. I can do it. I, I'm about to say, I don't think I've crashed anyone. Actually, I did. Um, one, a long time ago, GT2 RS, 2010. Thought, talked about it on this podcast once. Don't intend to do that again. Um, but no, generally speaking, you know, you and I do this sort of stuff, um, you know, very regularly. And I find it completely artificial. It's not like the old cars I drive, where it's a natural state for them. You're doing something specifically because you know it will look good on a page or good on a video. Um, you're not doing it to help your assessment of the car because it inform, doesn't inform it. Well, it, it, 1% or 1% in terms of the overall view of the car. It's, it's just not important. You're doing it because it's required of you and and it's required of you not to, as I say, to, because it's got anything to do with evaluation, but just because it's how it's going to look when it gets published. Um, and I do, I do admire those. I mean, you and I have got close friends, um, you know, who are world-class at this sort of thing. And I'm jealous of them. I'm envious of them. Um, you know, I wish I could do it with that sort of insouciance that they do it. Um, I, I, but I can't. I, I have to think really hard about it. I'm really pleased when it goes right. And I'm even more pleased when it's done. And I always say to the photographers or the videographer, whoever it is, you know, when you think you've got it, we're going to stop. Um, but what it isn't, I don't think, and maybe I am saying this because I'm not that great at it, um, but actually I know professional racing drivers who would agree with me what it isn't is in itself proof that you're a better driver than than anybody else um it is a form of driving isn't it there are certain people who excel in historic cars and can't get on with modern cars and vice versa um there are drivers you know nigel mansell you know in his day the best formula one driver just about that there was stick him in a touring car he was he really struggled it's just a form of driving. The, the, the example that I always come back to is when Steve McQueen was making the Le Mans movie in 1970. Um, they needed someone who could do skids, someone who could skid a Porsche 917, someone who could skid a Ferrari 512S for those amazing shots. Um, and they had the finest drivers in the world there because they all stayed on after the proper Le Mans race. Um, and none of them wanted to do it. And so they hired a bloke called Rob Slottermacher who was, you know, he was a racing driver and he was moderately successful, but nothing, you know, hardly Joe Siffert. Um, But he just happened to be able to skid cars like there was no tomorrow. And all those times you look at it and there's some 
you know, 512S doing this big elegant skid in that film. It's always, you know, the skid expert who's doing it. So it's a, it's a, it's an amazing skill, huge talent to do it. But if you can't, or you can, but you're just not that great at it, like me, it doesn't mean you're a bad driver or a lesser driver. It just means that of all those different components that make up driving, you're just, you know, you're better at some and not so good at, the, at others. And that's just one of the ones that you're not so good at. Um, so, you know, all I'm saying to all people who have looked at people who've done drifting and thought, oh, I wish I could do that. I'm, you know, maybe I'm a bit of a rubbish driver because I don't think I even begin to how to understand. It's got nothing to do with it. You know, you may or may not be a great um, drift driver. Don't think that you're a bad driver as a result if, if you're not. Well said. And of course, there are, I do just want to acknowledge that there are lots of different types of drifting. I mean, there's the sport where it's intentionally provoked with perhaps with a clutch kick, perhaps with a hydraulic handbrake, the car is built for it, full throttle, full steering lock. Um, that's a type of drifting. Another type is, as you've mentioned, in old racing cars and old tyres, they where you're drifting as a consequence of balancing the car at speed on the edge. And that's there's far less corrective lock there. It's not provoked in the same way. And then, all the, of course, all the magazine and car video stuff that you and I have done, um, I suppose that sits somewhere in the middle. And... You're right. I mean, we do it and people like it because it, it makes for an exciting image. Um, I, I don't think it particularly reveals a great deal. I mean, it might tell you how progressive a car is or how well balanced a car is, but it's not really that important because you can't do it. And if you try and do that on a track day, you get kicked off. If you do that on the road, you're just taking huge liberties and taking big chances. So when does the normal punter get to do that? It's stuff? not relevant to anything. No, it really isn't. It's relevant to magazine editors. Yeah, but it's become um, blockbuster in car media. I mean, yeah. just pick up a car magazine today or watch a YouTube video or Top Gear or something. It's everywhere. Um, and I get it. It's exciting. It looks dramatic. A big angle, loads of smoke. Um, and credit to the guys who do it well. You're right. We know a load of them and they do it superbly well. I can't do it to that standard. I can do it, you know... It, a sort of quickish second gear corner, um, I can make a car, a car slide nicely, but I, I don't like doing the big yee-haw third, fourth gear stuff. You know, some of these guys will do it on the road. They might close a bit of road, have no margin for error, come through in third gear, fully crossed up. I, just, I don't know how they have the confidence to do that. I'm, I, I don't have that. Um, so credit to them. However, has it got out of hand in car media? Okay, I remember working on a, a car magazine a few years ago and realizing that in the magazine, uh, the, in the magazine review of a very important new sports car, every single cornering shot was a skid, a drift. And I just thought, yeah. but uh, we, the trouble is, you lose something because that really dramatic telling still or um, even a moving image of a car going through a corner on the limit balanced poised on the limit of grip not sliding perhaps sliding it ever so slightly but it's not doing a big drift but you see it compressed you see how it rolls you see how the tires are gripping you get a feel for the balance of the car we've lost that when every shot shows it drifting you lose that wonderful image of a car poised on the limit um, and i think it's such a shame and it also becomes it gets like all things, isn't it? If you do it again and again and again and again, it just becomes normal. It just becomes, and the whole thing gets devalued and diluted um, to the point where, you know, I know drivers, well, I think you and I count ourselves among them, um, and I know lots of others um, who do, you know, drift shots, skid shots, whatever, um, who would go on those jobs in a much better frame of mind if they knew they didn't have to do it. Um, because at the back of your mind, there's always that chance. And it's not, I mean, I don't do it on the public road. Well, if I do do it on a public road now, I'll do it, um, you know, ideally on a closed bit of road, or at the very least on a completely open bit of road with spotters at either end with radios. So there is no chance of anyone coming along because it is simply, in my view, unacceptable to exit a corner sideways with someone who's completely unconnected to what you're doing coming towards you. It's, it's you know, it's just stupid. Um, and you cannot put them in that position and you cannot account for how they might react to seeing what they would regard as a car completely out of control coming towards them. Um, so, but even if it's, you know, in a quite a safe environment, 
you don't want to look like a twit. You don't want to be the bloke who throws it off. You don't want to be the bloke who just nerfs a corner against a barrier, um, and you know, and you know, and that's the end of the photo shoot or you know the test or whatever it is you're doing. Um, and so you know, people get stressy about it. And I don't, I don't think the guys who are really, really good at it. I mean, people who have got you know fantastic aptitudes and talents for this sort of thing. I think they really can just get in it and go and do it in much the same way you and I might drive a car to the shops. Uh, well, maybe not quite like that, but it's you know, it's not something that they that they fret about. I think the rest of us, which is most motoring journalists who have to do this stuff, do. Um, and fine, if it was just like the most important shot, you're going to get something which no one else was going to see of that car in any other publication, and it really bloody mattered. Well, fair enough, because we all do stuff we wouldn't ideally do, because it really bloody matters. Um, but it doesn't anymore, because you know everybody else will have the big skid shot. Um, Actually, what you get now is you get pre-skidded cars, don't you? You get manufacturers who go off and they, you know, they take all their, you know, their archive images and their library images and they get their B-roll and that sort of thing. And they'll have some hand, you know, a chassis engineer or someone in the, one particular manufacturer's um, case, somebody in the, in the press office who's really, really good at doing this sort of thing. Um, and, you, and, and they will just provide you with skid shots. You'll, you, know, you won't have to do it. You, know, you just get you know, a load of press shots with cars going sideways in them. Um, and it's become that familiar, that common, that I just... I just wonder why we take those risks and, and stress ourselves to that extent to produce something which, you know, is is, is not special anymore. Mm. Um, and it is, maybe some people will think that it is. Yeah, yeah. there are, there are risks involved. I've watched several very skilled drivers spin cars on the road, doing it. Several. Yeah, I I've watched it happen. Um, yeah. And in one case, the car got damaged. And yeah. It's, and it's particularly tricky nowadays. You know, you never know who's got a dash cam pointing at you. Um, roads are busier. Ugh, I don't know. I think I increasingly feel like that stuff needs to be kept to, you know, a circuit or a private facility. Um, what I what I will say is that, and it's so dependent on the car. Um, I was up at Anglesey. Uh, when was it? Last September? Yeah. Uh, doing the autocar best handling thing uh and we had an aston martin f1 aston martin vantage f1 edition up there um so pretty much perfect for that sort of thing you think about the components you know front engine rear drive very torquey engine just on standard p0 so you know not super sticky tires that need to be really wrenched out of place and sometimes you're if you're if you're lucky enough to be in that kind of car on a track, um, Anglesey is quite a safe circuit um, for that sort of thing. And you suddenly feel completely at home in it. I mean, maybe you do one skid and it's suddenly always oh, easier than you thought it was going to be. Um, and you suddenly get the confidence then. And it's quite rare if you're, you know, if all those stars align, then it can be fantastic fun because it, it is, it does appeal to my inner child to come out of, yeah. you know that kind of that third gear right where you come out of it at and then you go over the brow and you've got the C yeah. in front of you and it's down there and to come out of that you know fully lit looking in the mirror and seeing all the smoke there is it's funny it I mean, it does amuse me um and you know so yeah on those occasions when that happens um then love it great absolutely I'll do as much of it as you like doesn't bother me in the least but it's rare it's rare um even with something like so I was I was doing some of this. The most recently was with the Cayman GT4 RS. Now, sticky tyres, Cup 2s, mid-engine car, um, quite a tight mechanical diff on it. And the great thing about you know, diffs is, you know, once you're skidding, they're great. But if you've got quite a, quite a tight mechanical diff on the car, they actually make the car want to understeer on entry. And so you've, you do have to provoke it. It's not a natural, you know, however many sideways shots you've seen of a GT4 RS, and I've been, probably been in a few of them, um, it's not actually the natural state for the car. You know, unlike that E39 M5 we were talking about earlier, um, which is just loves going sideways. And I hope somehow you get the, the opportunity to do something with it. Um, for a GT4 RS, it's, it's, it's actually not what the car wants to do. And so you go off and you do it, and it was actually fine because once it is skidding, you know, it's, it's perfectly well-behaved and everything else. But it's not what the car inherently wants to do. Whereas something like that Aston Vantage, it was great. So I guess it's just horses for course. When you've got the right equipment for the job and you find yourself in the right environment, in the right mood, fine. Otherwise, frankly, I'd rather not do it. 
Sorry, if that's yeah. really disappointing. No, I think you're right. And I, th- I think in terms of the images that we produce doing what we do, I think it's a shame if we kill ourselves into thinking <clears throat> that's the most important thing or the only thing that matters. I just don't think it is. It so um, isn't. Okay. All right. Well, let's leave it there. I mean, we'll do the listener question in a moment. Um, first of all, thank you to JBR Capital for sponsoring the podcast. Um, all their contact details are in the description. So if you're looking to buy a car, um, any sports car, classic car, hypercar, supercar, any luxury car, whatever, just it's worth just seeing what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. Um, please also rate and review the podcast and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast or watch. Um, that really helps. So the listener question is from Rich and his handle is, is this the longest name? So hello, Rich. Um, <clears throat> and he wants to know, and I don't think I've prepared you for this, but you'll know off the top you of your head. You never do. You never <clears throat> well, ever it's... do. And, and genuinely, anybody listening to this, I have no idea what words are about to come out of Dan's mouth. It's funnier that way. It's more amusing for everyone, especially <laughs> yeah, me. For, well, no, for everyone <laughs> apart from me, but go on. <laughs> uh, so, what second-hand Ferrari would you buy for the price of a Porsche Boxster? Now, I'm assuming that's a Boxster S, which I checked earlier is now £58,000. Um, and I'm looking at the classifieds here. So I've got every Ferrari on one classified site up to £60,000. And there are 41 of them. Um, wow. And let me just scroll to the bottom. The cheapest of them. Do you remember when you could buy a sort of 12, 13 grand Ferrari? I can remember when you could buy a V12 Ferrari for £10,000. Okay, it would be an automatic 400i. It would need a bazillion spending on it. But yeah, I, I, do, I do. Yeah, I mean, that, those days are, are long gone. So... Um, okay, so so first of all, what sort of cars are we talking about? Are, we, are there presumably there are Mondials on there? Yeah, so uh, the, the cheapest one I'm seeing at the moment is forty four thousand pounds, and it's a four five six auto. Yeah, um, brave, brave. <laughs> yes, but there are also Mondials. Um, there's a four hundred i. There's a a two o two o eight. A two o eight. Okay, a two o eight is an Italian tax expressal. They tax cars of more than two litres. So Ferrari, when they're making the 308 for Italy, they made a 208, uh, which couldn't get out of its own weight, but they also made a 208 Turbo. Um, I've not driven one, but I quite like to. Um, so, yeah. And that was the smallest, it may still be, actually, smallest V8 ever to go into production. In a That's standard really road cool, car. isn't it? There you go. We've got, we've got a 308 GT4, a 348, um, a few 348s, inevitably. Um, yeah. There's another 208. Uh, okay, and we've got a few 360s. I'm seeing a manual 360. What? What's happening? They're mostly, they're mostly autos. Oh, I'm seeing two manual three. No, I'm seeing one. Oh, do you know what? This might be because they have that F1 gearbox. That, let me have a look at this one. I've got a yellow 360 for 55k. Does it actually have a manual? No, it doesn't. You know when they list them as manuals because they sort of technically are, but they, they don't have a H-pattern manual. It's really annoying, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so they're robotized manuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So of that lot, um, I'm not brave enough to go for a V12. Uh, I'm just not. Uh, I just, you know. Um, and A shout out and to the, th- the chap we know who has. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just thinking what I think. I mean, the one I'm, I'm instinctively drawn towards is the, is the 308 GT4. The Batoni body two plus two barely um, car from the from the mid to late nineteen seventies. Um, only because I drove one not that long ago and it was so much better than I thought it was going to be. I really really love that. I'm surprised that you can get three sixties for that kind of money. Um, I wouldn't have a three four eight for any amount of money to be honest. Um, and a Mondial is a Mondial convertible. I can see for the same reason that I can see an R one oh seven Mercedes or you know, Z8 BMW, it's a wafter. Um, and that's kind of, but I don't think you'll get a convertible Mondial for that sort of money. So um, with all these things, any anybody with the money can buy a Ferrari. That doesn't mean that anybody with the money can then go on and run it. Um, and if you're thinking that you can get a Ferrari for Porsche box to money, and that'll be terrific, um, frankly, more for you. Um, so anybody who's seriously thinking about doing anything like this, just... Just buy carefully. So, you know, the, particularly with cars like old Ferraris, actually the most expensive ones end up being the cheapest. 
And I really do mean that because by the time you've got yourself what looks like a bargain and then realise what a bag of bits it is, it is, and then put it right and then just try to maintain it, um, you're almost always better off just spending, you know, I don't know, 20, 30% more and buying a proper car, which isn't going to let you down. And you'll just enjoy it that much more. And then when you come to say it, it'll be worth that much more too. So I'm not sure that buying the cheapest possible Ferrari has ever been a particularly great idea apart from for measuring journalists looking for stories but um, of that lot gun to head I'd either get a 360 because that's probably the most sensible choice uh, in terms of the financials because I think they're probably right down the bottom of their depreciation curve at the moment um, so that's the kind of head answer but the heart answer is a 308 GT4 yeah, fantastic. There you go. I'd, I'd with any of these cars, I'd just have the big bill fear. I'd have that anxiety all the time. So would I. Because and it spoils your enjoyment of the car every time you start to start yeah. it up. Every time you went anywhere, you'd just be thinking, "Please, please, 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 <laughs> just don't go wrong." So there you go. Great question, Rich. Thank you. Get your questions in, um, and we'll answer them. Thank you all for watching or listening, and we'll be back next week. Look forward to it. Thanks all. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.